Under the new administration, many current laws and regulations are coming up for review. The president has ordered a review of the clean water rule, but his administration's ability to strip away environmental regulations that protect water quality is unclear. So, for this week's Please Explain, we are discussing clean water laws and the impact they've had on our country. Joining us now is Dave Owen, professor of law at UC Hastings, whose work focuses on water resource management. Welcome to our show. Thank you for having me on. And we also invite our listeners during these segments to join the conversation. You can give us a call at 212-433-9692. You can write to us on our show page at wnyc.org slash lopate or on Facebook or Twitter where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. So, uh, Professor Owen, let's start with the reasons given for the Clean Water Act in 1972. Wasn't it originally known as the Federal Water Pollution Control Act? It was, and then Clean Water Act eventually became a shorter and easier handle for it. Um, the reason, the reasons Congress passed uh, the Clean Water Act in the in the 1970s, uh, ultimately, are that water quality was awful uh, in rivers and lakes and streams across the country. Uh, water quality was so bad that rivers literally were catching on fire from the pollution on their surfaces. Uh, where I used to live in Maine, many of the rivers were, uh, they, they smelled so bad and were so heavily polluted that no one wanted to live anywhere near them, uh, let alone swim or fish. And Congress thought that the states, which had previously had primary responsibility for protecting water quality, weren't doing enough uh, to protect water quality and also weren't getting enough federal support uh, to build the infrastructure that we would need to protect water quality. So in 1972, Congress passed the Clean Water Act that was designed to first provide a lot of financial support to states and local governments as they built wastewater treatment plants, but also to establish strong regulatory controls limiting the ability of industry and and municipalities and states to pollute their waterways. Randy Newman wrote a song about the Cuyahoga River outside of Cleveland catching fire. How can a river catch fire? Was that a unique occurrence? It was not a unique occurrence. The Cuyahoga River was in the habit of burning. Uh, It did so periodically. And the reason it caught on fire is that a spark from a passing railroad uh, flew over the side of a bridge and landed on the surface of the river, which was uh, heavily polluted. So there's a thick scum of pollutants floating on the surface of the water, uh, enough of those pollutants were flammable that the river caught on fire. Hmm. Uh, we're not talking just a little fire here. If you look at the photographs of the time, this was a pretty big burn, and it was something that had happened uh, on several previous occasions. Why was the Clean Water Act amended in 1977 and then again in 1987? So those changes happened because at that point, well, Let's go back. In 1972, the Clean Water Act was something fairly new. Uh, It was similar to the Clean Air Act, which had been passed two years before in some ways. But it was a huge new experiment, and Congress didn't get everything right, and it knew it wasn't going to get everything right. So in 1977 and in 1987, Congress amended the Clean Water Act to make it stronger in some respects, to make it more flexible in others, and to try to adapt it to deal with problems like uh, urban stormwater pollution that the original drafters of the statute really hadn't put a whole lot of thought into addressing. Was it uh, seen initially as a bipartisan effort? Uh, Was it 
uh, seen as a common sense reform or uh, was it seen as radical legislation? Well, it was seen as a dramatic change to the status quo. Uh, members of Congress had no doubt that they were making big, big changes to existing law. But it was also overwhelmingly bipartisan. Uh, and in fact, all of the environmental statutes passed during the early 1970s passed with overwhelming bipartisan support. Uh, the Clean Water Act was a little bit different because President Nixon tried to veto it. But his veto arose primarily from concerns that the wastewater treatment funding was going to be way too expensive. Uh, so he, was, he generally was supportive uh, of environmental legislation during that period. Uh, he just balked at the cost. He was, is credited with creating the EPA, although right, right. now the EPA is um, under attack. Yes. So EPA was created during a Republican administration. Uh, and not only did Nixon have a role in creating the EPA, but he also made the decision to staff it uh, and to appoint as its first head William Ruckelshaus, who was deeply committed to environmental protection and to having a strong enforcement program within the agency. So very different from the politics of the present day. He vetoed it, you said, uh, although it, it, his veto was overridden. Uh, yes, it was. Uh, what were the arguments for people who were opposed to the law, other than that it was expensive? So at the time it was passed, there wasn't a lot of opposition to it. Uh, there was debate in Congress about different regulatory mechanisms that Congress should use. And there was also debate about the level of authority that should be given to the states and how much the federal government should take over versus how much it should leave in state hands. Uh, so those questions were, were fairly thoroughly debated by the Congress that passed the Clean Water Act. But the basic idea that there needed to be a Clean Water Act and it needed to be strong uh, was not really debated all that much within the halls of Congress. I'm speaking with David Owen, professor of law at UC Hastings. We're talking about uh, clean water laws here in the United States on today's Please Explain, inviting your calls at 212-433-9692. This is WNYC, WNYC.org. And we have a call from Charles from Staten Island. Charles, you know something about this topic? Well, good afternoon, and thank you, Professor. I was a level three task to the uh, uh, EPA as a special advisor, and I co-chaired with the Brookings Fellow the 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 uh, the, the, the survey directions of the of that first uh, uh, survey of water quality treatment, sewage treatment in the United States. It was fascinating. Russ Train, uh, as you noted, uh, passed it up to the president, who, uh, this is a funny story, was that uh, the, pre the, the president's counsel sent it back saying, do the survey again, and we, we, were, we, were, we were horrified, uh, 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 Ruckel's house and, and, and the people in budgeting were hilarious, and as you know, the case went to the courts, and we could not redo the study to come up with a lower number than, 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 than the survey actually came up with. And I want to thank you so much. I think it's a timely, very timely uh, subject uh, in, in our current environments. Thank you for calling us. So what did the Clean Water Act actually do? Was it meant to protect all waterways? And, 
Or was it only the ones uh, that uh, might be polluted through agricultural waste, pesticides, or uh, the kinds of pollutants that we saw dumped into the Hudson River? So I'll give you a two-part answer there. First, what the Clean Water Act was designed, intended to do, and then what its design was actually effective at doing. So it's fairly clear from the legislative history of the statute and from the statute itself that Congress wanted to protect all waterways. Uh, that this was not a statute designed to be selective and protect some rivers and lakes but not others or some streams but not others. Um, Well, that would mean an awful lot of water. We had the Great Lakes alone and the Mississippi River and a whole bunch of other major rivers in this country and then streams and dams uh, with water. There's, There's a lot of water in this country. There is a lot of water in this country. Um, And I should say the the one type of waterway that the Clean Water Act really was not designed to directly protect is an aquifer. In other words, underground water. Uh, And many people don't realize this, but that's actually where most of our water is. Um, The amount of it we see up above the ground is, is dwarfed by the amount that's beneath the ground. Congress used other statutes to protect underground water. But protecting surface water alone is a pretty big task because, as you say, there's quite a lot of it. As it actually got implemented, the Clean Water Act turned out to be really very effective at protecting waterways from industrial waste and from municipal sewage. Now, we still have work to do on both of those fronts, but we've made enormous gains, and one of the reasons that so many of our waterways are much, much cleaner than they were in the 1970s is because of the effectiveness of those controls. It's turned out to be not quite as effective at dealing with more diffuse sources of pollution, uh, so urban stormwater runoff, and not particularly effective at all uh, because of some uh, exemptions that were written into the statute in 1977 at dealing with pollution from agricultural sources. Did it uh, cost as much as Richard Nixon feared it would? It was expensive. Yes, it was not a cheap statute to implement. Um, With a lot of environmental laws, the estimates for the cost of implementing the statute turn out to be much, much higher than the actual cost. Uh, I am not sure of the exact comparison between projected costs and actual costs of the Clean Water Act, but I know that retrospective studies have concluded that this was not a cheap statute to implement and that the the wastewater treatment plant program, uh, though it achieved wonderful things, uh, came with with, with a, a steep bill. When did the Safe Drinking Water Act come about? Was that in response to uh, loopholes in the Clean Water Act? Uh, the safety, it's a concurrent statute, and it, it's not really a matter of loopholes. It just deals with some different issues. Um, the Safe Drinking Water Act is primarily focused on the quality of water that comes out of the tap, uh, and it moves through, through our municipal water supply systems. The Clean Water Act, by contrast, is focused primarily on the quality of water out there in the environment. Now, that's an overly simple distinction. There's some overlap there. Uh, And, of course, because all the water that comes out of the tap starts in the environment, uh, the Clean Water Act certainly supports the goals of the Safe Drinking Water Act. But they generally, they're, they're statutes from the same general era, but with somewhat different areas of focus. Well, the tap water can come from reservoirs, it can come from rivers, it can come from well water. Uh, was was that act uh, addressing all of those things? Yes. So the Safe Drinking Water Act 
it's the, the core requirements it establishes are testing requirements for water that water that municipal water systems supply to us. Uh, and the requirement to test water and make sure that it is safe to drink applies regardless of the original source of the water. There are additional requirements as well that are designed to protect source areas, and then that starts to overlap with the goals of the Clean Water Act, which is also designed to make waterways fishable and swimmable and, in many cases, drinkable. Um, Before the Safe Drinking Water Act, uh, was tap water unsafe in much of the country? You know, that's a good question. Uh, and I don't know the history of the Safe Drinking Water Act as well as I do the Clean Water Act. Um, but if we go back far enough, the answer is definitely yes, uh, in, in many parts of this country and in other parts of the world as well. Uh, we had some fairly substantial problems with waterborne diseases. And even in the years prior to the passage of the Clean Water Act, municipalities had started to build drinking water treatment plants. Uh, but they're expensive, and they work better if the water coming in is clean. So, again, I can't give you a full answer on the extent of drinking water problems prior to the Safe Drinking Water Act. Um, but I do know that we are in a better circumstance now with the passage of that act than we were before. On the other hand, we've uh, had all sorts of, of uh, water supplies called into question in places like Flint and Newark. How was that able to happen when the government had a, a policy to clean up the water? So starting specifically with Flint, what happened in Flint is... Uh, that the city of Flint switched to a different water source. It switched from water from Lake Huron to using water from the Flint River. And the water in the Flint River had a somewhat different chemical composition, which reacted with metals in the pipes to, to leach those metals out and increase the quantity of metals, including lead, in the drinking water. So in terms of how this happened as a governance problem, it was just a basic matter of oversight. There were fairly straightforward tests that should have been done when this switch was took place. And there were treatment methods that could have largely dealt with the problem. And who's responsible, so, the federal government or the state government in a situation like that? Uh, primarily the state, but the federal government plays a backup and oversight and supporting role. And that's true with the Clean Water Act as well. Both of these statutes are what we sometimes refer to as cooperative federalism statutes. And what that basically means is the states take the lead, that states are on the front lines of, of implementing the statutes, but the federal government provides oversight and support. You mentioned lead as a problem. in Even in a city like New York where we talk about having great water coming from uh, reservoirs, uh, many of the pipes that lead into people's homes are, are old and are lead pipes. Uh, I was. It was recommended to me by someone who I think knows this kind of stuff that I run my tap water uh, for a little while until it runs really cold uh, before I start using it to drink or make coffee or whatever. Does that make sense? I think the thing that makes the most sense is to get your water tested. Uh, it's not that expensive to do that. Uh, and then you can find out if you've got an issue or if you don't. If you don't have lead in your pipes or if for whatever reason it's not leaching out, then there's no sense wasting the water by just running it for a long period of time. 
On the other hand, if you do have lead in your pipes, you might want to do more of an intervention than just uh, running the water for a while before you drink it. So there's common sense to that recommendation, but there's a better fix. My guest is Dave Owen, professor of law at UC Hastings. Uh, we are inviting your calls at 212-433-9692. You can write to us on our show page at wmyc.org slash Lopate or on Facebook or Twitter where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. And we will continue our conversation after this. And we are back with Dave Owen, professor of law at UC Hastings. We're talking about clean water in this country and uh, the regulations and the potential changes to regulations and inviting your calls at 212-433-9692. You can write to us on our show page at WMIC.org or on Facebook or Twitter. My handle is at Leonard Lopate. And Rich from Dingman's Ferry, Pennsylvania, you're on the air. Thanks, Len. First of all, I knew that mixing guy was good for something. In the meantime, I just read in the paper that bottled water, there was a spike in bottled water sales just, uh, I think, last year, that, and it passed soda pop and carbonated drink sales, which is a good sign by itself. Um, so we're talking about uh, the quality of water and uh, preserving the quality of water. What about preserving water itself in its availability and its quality and its uh, sustainability. Dave? Uh, it's a huge issue, and uh, interestingly, it's an issue on which uh, the United States actually has had, we've had some tr troubles, but we've also had some successes. Um, per capita water use in this country has actually been declining for quite a while. Um, and the some of the biggest declines are, as you might expect, in some of the most water-stressed places, uh, places like Los Angeles. Uh, but it is, your caller is right, that that is an enormous issue. And it's an issue that's also related to water quality. Uh, the more careful we are in using water, the less we take out of rivers and lakes and streams, the more we leave in, uh, the higher the water quality tends to be in, in the water that remains. Does the Clean Water Act and the Safe Drinking Water Act protect against potential issues involving fracking, which is a relatively new technology? Uh, not much. Um, the, there are <clears throat> fracking has had some exemptions applied to it, and, and, and for the Safe Drinking Water Act and for some other environmental laws that make it a little bit harder to cover. Uh, and the Clean Water Act doesn't have all that much effect because with fracking, mostly what what users are or what frackers are doing is taking water out of groundwater systems and putting it back into groundwater systems. And the Clean Water Act primarily applies to discharges to surface water. In 2014, a coal processing plant close to Charleston, West Virginia, contaminated water for more than 300,000 residents. But wasn't that spill outside of the jurisdiction of the Safe Drinking Water Act? Right. So a spill like that is going to fall uh, under Clean Water Act coverage. There is also the possibility uh, of coverage under hazardous waste management laws. Uh, the Safe Drinking Water Act would be implicated to the extent that downstream waterways uh, are drinking water sources. But it would, it would require testing. It might require uh, using alternative water sources. Let's take another call. Mike from Sheepshead Bay, you're on the air. Hi, Leonard. Leonard, you asked the gentleman a question. He didn't give you a straight answer. I want to know, does running the water 
still cold, get around drinking lead, a lead-infused water, yes or no? Thank you. Can I add to that? The, the thinking was that the water that's been sitting there overnight, for example, will have more potential for having leached lead than the stuff that's just coming straight through the pipes. So the, the short, straight answer, that will help, but get your pipes tested. Uh-huh. Can you talk about the Clean Water Act regulations that were put into place in 2015? Who uh, was responsible for them? Were they executive orders? No, an executive order is, a, is, is something very different from a regulation, and I can explain that in a moment. But I'll, I'll start by giving the story of these regulations. Uh, these regulations were put out by the Army Corps of Engineers and EPA, the two federal agencies that implement the Clean Water Act. And the regulations basically decide how much of our landscape the Clean Water Act covers. So to put the point a little differently, how many streams and wetlands and other aquatic features are protected by the Clean Water Act? This has been a it's really been a big question since the Clean Water Act was passed uh, because the boundaries between land and water aren't always entirely clear and they can also fluctuate with seasons and with climatic changes. So ever since the act was passed, the Army Corps and EPA have had to, to do some thinking about whether think aquatic features like intermittent streams that only flow some of the time uh, or smaller and seasonal wetlands would be covered at all. The 2015 regulations uh, were passed by EPA and the Army Corps, and they were designed for the most part to just clarify and ratify existing on-the-ground practices. In other words, to provide greater clarity about what the Army Corps and EPA had already been doing with respect to stream and wetland protection. And they also made clear the agency's position that most intermittent and ephemeral streams, so these are streams, again, that just flow some of the time, were going to be protected by the Clean Water Act, and that's, that's where the controversy lies. Why was there so much opposition to these regulations? If you think about a river network, if you think about the, uh, a river and its supporting streams, a lot of the miles of streams in this country in any river network are going to be in this intermittent or ephemeral or just small category. And there's lots and lots of small wetlands as well across the American landscape. Can you explain ephemeral and intermittent? Yeah, an ephemeral stream is a stream that just flows during and right after a rain event. And an intermittent stream is a stream that flows typically seasonally or during wetter periods, uh, and then in drier periods when the groundwater levels drop and it loses its recharge, it dries up. So these kinds of aquatic features are everywhere. They are very, very important for water quality uh, because a lot of processing of pollutants and regulation of flows happens in these far upstream waters. At the same time, because they're everywhere, they get in people's way when people want to build things, whether it's building developments or uh, building roads or engaging in activities like mining. So for regulated parties, having these waterways protected by the Clean Water Act is really inconvenient. Uh, and that's been the, the primary source of the opposition for, for many, many years. Let's take some more calls. Tom from Cornwall, you're on the air. Hi. Go ahead. Uh, my question relates to private wells. Are there any particular types of testing, or should it be focused, or are the things that you test for 
if you're not on a municipal water system? Uh, so, yes, you should be testing your well periodically. Uh, what you test for is going to depend a little bit. So I'm going to give you a, a, another sort of general answer, and then this is something I think you would want to ask more specific questions to a local health department uh, or another source, just because I, I, I don't know the full details of the answer. But in general, you'd want to be concerned about bacteria, uh, contamination from things like septic tanks. You certainly also would want to be concerned about radon, depending on whether, if you, particularly if you have a bedrock well. Um, and... <clears throat> Well, don't most houses, don't most homes that use well water have filtration systems? Usually you put a lot of salt into some kind of a, uh, <laughs> a round thing. I, I know I've had to do it, but I had no idea why I was doing it. So you might choose to do that, and it's a good choice. But as a matter of law, private wells are not heavily regulated. Uh, and that means that it's really up to a homeowner to figure out whether or not well water is safe, uh, and it's important to do that. Um, and again, I just don't want to give you a specific list of chemicals to test for because it would depend on where you are and what the potential threats are, what other activities are going on around you, um, and I don't want to give an under-inclusive answer um, and have somebody go out and rely on that. Okay, Tom? What would you say? Uh, that the local health department might have that information, the things that we should be uh, interested in testing. Yes. Okay, thank you. Thanks for calling. Jean from Jersey City, hi, you're on the air. Oh, hello, how are you doing? It's called a water softener, in case you forgot. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, I'm just curious. I I'm a city in. boy. Ah, well, you, you knew you had to put salt or something into a cylindrical container, so yeah. that works for me. But regardless, um, I just came late to the show, um, and I understand you're doing the um, water safety, um, et cetera. But I was curious, because I live in Jersey City, just erupting with new um, office buildings, towers, residential, such and such. Um, is there any type of branch um, of your guests could address or are there any studies that sort of examine the density of new construction um, when attached to old reservoirs? Can they actually serve the purpose of these new buildings? In particular, I'll just say, for example, site where there was a big chase building that was supposed to be built here in downtown Jersey City. They um, sold it to a developer, and then they decided to put in all residential units. So, therefore, the issue is now you're just not um, making coffee or flushing a couple of toilets. You're talking about showers, kitchens, bathrooms, laundromat, um, with such an excess use of water. And is there anyone or any ability to monitor or just discover um, what the load of the resources that they're drawing upon? Yeah, so, so in the West, where, where I'm talking to you from, this has been a big legal issue for a long time. And most Western states have what we sometimes call show-me-the-water laws that say that before a new project can be built, there has to be a demonstrated available and reliable water source for it. Eastern states haven't done that as much because and, – and this is generally done at the state level, not, not by the federal government. Eastern states haven't generally not done that as much because they've generally thought, well, we're the East. It rains all the time here. We don't, we don't need that sort of law. Uh, but – as development densities get 
and, and just sheer amounts of development get higher and higher in the east, uh, I think it's likely that eastern states more and more are going to be enacting that sort of law because they won't see any choice. And then every once in a while we're hit by a drought as well. For state governments, is the Clean Water Act a partisan issue? For example, in theory, shouldn't Louisiana be very supportive of the Clean Water Act, but in fact opposes it? Right. So at the, at the state level and at the federal level, water quality protection has become a very partisan issue. Uh, and so, and, and the opposition to the 2015 regulations that were designed to clarify what's covered by the Clean Water Act really illustrates that. Are they are uh, those regulations specifically what Scott Pruitt, the new head of the EPA, and the Trump administration want to roll back? Right. They would now. They have the, the latest Trump executive order is designed to start a process of rolling those back, and and. The administration can't do that overnight with an executive order. A regulation has to go through a multi-year process, typically multi-year process of vetting. A draft regulation has to go out. Uh, the administration has to take public comments on that regulation. It has to respond to those comments. It has to explain why it is making a change. So there's a long process that uh, the 2015 regulate or that the new regulatory effort would have to go through before the old ones can be changed. And, and what arguments just kicks that off? And what arguments are they giving for rolling those regulations back? Uh, a lot of the arguments, and this goes back to your earlier question about the role of states, a lot of the arguments fall under two categories. One is they're saying that the cost of these regulations is incredibly high. So the typical rhetoric we now hear with any environmental dispute about massive numbers of lost jobs uh, is being deployed here as well. I don't think there's much empirical basis for that at all. Uh, but that's the line that is being given. And then the other complaint is that the regulations trample on the authority of the states, and more particularly the authority of the states to regulate land use. So the argument that ambitious state attorney generals, including Scott Pruitt and including the, the attorney general of Louisiana, have raised against this regulation uh, is that it's basically taking away state authority. So what do you Again, think? I don't think that's true. Well, what do you think would happen if the entire Clean Water Act were repealed? Could the states simply regulate their waterways by themselves? Uh, no. Uh, they could do some regulation by themselves, but their rivers flow from state to state. So, for example, Louisiana is never going to be able to ensure on its own that there's good water quality in the Mississippi River uh, because the quality of the water in the Mississippi River depends heavily on what happens on farmers' fields in Iowa uh, and Indiana and Illinois, uh, and among other places. And all across the country, we have waterways that are like that, that flow from state to state. The other problem is that uh, a lot of expertise on water quality protection resides at EPA. And if we were to just do away with the Clean Water Act or even just limit its scope substantially, it would take a long time for some states to build up comparable expertise. Uh, some of them have it, but they don't have as many people as they would need to do a really good job of protecting their water quality. The third issue, and this is an issue... And you have to make Congress, it quick. Okay. That Congress was really worried about when the Clean Water Act was first passed is that industries would threaten states and say, if you try to regulate our water quality problems, uh, we'll discuss Dave, with us. Dave Owen is a professor of law at UC Hastings. Thank you so much for being on our show today. 